George Robert Fuller, do you know who that is? Well, you're going to find out. He is a professional, a black man living here in the States and all around the world. And we're going to cover things like family, Jerry Springer, celebrities, systemic racism. It's going to be a good one. Everything is fueled from me wanting to be a better person on Earth. It's time to do your part. Uh, loyal listeners and viewers, do your part. Still on the road, LA County, yet again, I'm in Venice Beach, joined with Mr. George Robert Fuller. Uh, as I tell you with a lot of guests, if you don't know who they are, Google them. But he's going to tell you all about them and much, much more. I've been waiting to sit down and talk with you. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm going to get a little closer, okay. a little more intimate. I'm well. I'm good. You know, again, I've been so excited to have these conversations with you. You've lived like three lives in the 40-something years you've been here. How old are you? 43. I knew that. I wanted them to hear that. But um, so I just am excited to hear, again, perspective, <laughs> a bit of your experience, et cetera. So I always ask my guests, I asked you to do this. Why would you say yeah? Why did I say yes? Because I think that it's also important that people get to hear from people from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Diversity. And why not? Yeah. That's part of the problem with uh, just the world in general is that we get too pocketed in our own levels of comfort. And it's like, wait, there's other things out there that can show us newness, right? Correct. So tell me a bit about, I know you're from Chicago. I don't know too much about your upbringing, your experience. So I want you to tell myself as well as the viewers a bit about, you know, where you're from and what that was like. And yeah, give us some detail. Mm -hmm. Well, I come from Chicago, Illinois, uh, Southwest side, uh, middle class, working middle class neighborhood, mm -hmm. uh, single parent household, maternal, uh, single parent. I grew up in the house with my mother and grandmother. So I was fortunate to have two parents, so to speak, mm -hmm. as opposed to just my mother. I was an only child, her only child. Um, and it was, a, like I said, a middle-class working neighborhood. Uh, I went to Catholic school pr pretty much all my life. Wow. Uh, Let me jump in. Catholic school, do a lot of black folks uh, practice Catholicism? I don't know if that's necessary. I don't. I don't know how I could answer that. Probably, I don't know. I don't know if they do, but right? I know. Because think about it. That's interesting. But a private school education, you know, it's generally Catholic school. I don't know, in the Midwest at least. Mm -hmm. So when you and hear people right, say. I think you're right, Northeast too. Yeah, exactly. When they say my kids are going to, going to private school, they're normally speaking of a Catholic school. Gotcha. Okay. Sorry. Go on. So, so I, like many had a Catholic school education and no, I was not Catholic. Mm -hmm. Although I got an, uh, though I got a, a plus in religion. I uh, grew up in the AME church, uh, which is African Methodist Episcopal. Uh, and, um, wait, 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 wait. So these two things weren't conflicting for you in uh, a within yourself or B within, uh, your mom in the school. No, they didn't care. She wanted me to go to a good school. Got it. So and it they wasn't, don't, they don't have any AME. Uh -huh. schools, Christian schools. Right. So the next best thing is Catholic You can see why school. one would be interested by that. That's oh, pretty absolutely. interesting. Absolutely. That's know? a good question as well. I mean, ca Catholic Monday through Friday and then on the weekends, I never, Epis Episcopalian, you said. I never thought of it, but yes. And I did used to question it sometimes when I was growing up. I was like, oh, now how do I go to Catholic school? And I would say to my mom or my grandmother, who was really heavy in the uh, religion, AME, mm -hmm. uh, she say, oh boy, please, you know? So I'm like, okay, well, I'm studying Catholicism to your point, 
more of that than I am AME, although I was pretty active in the church as well, uh, many different um, facets of the church. Where are you now with religion? Um, I'm grateful that I have a religious base, but I tend to think that I'm a bit more spiritual now than religious. Mm. Uh, though I think that spirituality comes from a base of religion. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to think that religion is a bit judgmental mm -hmm. uh, and a bit, uh, it, it has a tendency to be ostracizing to people. It ostracizes many. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't really subscribe to religion anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that a relationship with God should be personal and individual mm -hmm. and it's unique for each of us. Uh, you know, I'm a gay man and I was, you know, that's, You're gay. that's something that's condemned. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I surprise, surprise. I do that with all my gay guests. Go oh, ahead. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Uh, so yeah. And, 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 uh, religion doesn't, it speaks against who I am. So mm. I had to learn to love myself in spite of what other people told me. And one of the sayings was some of the worst folks is the church folks. Yeah. I still see that floating around on Facebook. Yeah. This is a good time for me to circle back. So with that said, and you kind of having this conflict of what the word words of the Bible say and conflicting of who you are, how did that translate with you growing up? Like, did you hate yourself? And, and as far as Catholicism and Catholic school, was this elementary and junior high and high school? I went, in elementary school, I graduated from high Catholic school and high school. I went to Catholic school, then I transferred to an arts So the academy, majority of your I school went career. Back to high school, to a, I graduated from a, from a Catholic high school. Yes. So the bulk so of, it. of my life. Okay. Yes. So I keep cutting you off, but go ahead. So okay. what was that like? Did you have self-loathing growing up? Um, self-loathing? No, I've always been pretty unique. So, and being an only child, you learn how to entertain yourself mm -hmm. and being a fortunate only child, meaning that I had every toy that every kid ever wanted. <laughs> so, and bikes and all that stuff. So that made me, you know, even though others might've spoken against me at times, I always had all the shiny things that they wanted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they would befriend me anyway. And that's value. It is still to this day. Yeah, I suppose. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. When That's you have value. stuff when you have people shine, want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It draws people to you. Yeah. I don't know if it's a good thing now at the point where I am in life, but you know, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to that. Yeah. You know, because you've worked your tail off to get to where you are. You've a, you talk yeah. about unique. You have a very unique story. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. So I think that um, going back to self-loathing. No, it wasn't. It wasn't self-loathing. I think other kids, because I was different and unique had more of a problem with me than I had with myself. Mm -hmm. What made you unique? I, going back to the question you asked, I mean, just being gay, I think makes you, makes you unique. And going back to your original question, which is the word and how I felt, um, my grandmother set me down early on in life and said she's very, been very instrumental in my upbringing, as was I did have a great grandfather. We lived in a family building. So on the first floor, my great grandfather lived and his wife who died when I was two, then he remarried. So my step grandmother, Christine, and then my grandmother, myself, and my mom lived on the second floor. And then my- So four generations, you, your mom, your grandmother, and her father. Absolutely. In, in one, one building, in one building. Unbelievable. Yes. That's and a show. still five generations alive. That's a show. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it'd have to be like a comedy. Maybe Tyler Perry could do something with it. But I agree. Wow. 
go on. Yeah. So I grew up in that household. And uh, so Do you my, remember your gra- great grandfather? Oh my God. He didn't die until I was 22 or three. And yes, you were close very, well. very close. Very rare. Go ahead. So, um, <clears throat> in fact, oh yeah, very close. He used to walk me to my first school when I was, you know, a very, 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 like a toddler called Emmanuel Christian. There used to be a statue. I remember one of my fondest memories of him is passing the statue he had on white pants. He was like a jockey and like this blue shirt and I would call him Mr. Blue. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, I guess the family moved and left and moved the statue. He's like, where's Mr. Blue? Where's Mr. Blue? So it's so funny. I remember that. But yeah, so, I, you know, eventually my, my grandmother sat me down and, and explained to me the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament is where it speaks against homosexuality and men being lovers of love of each other and, you know, how it's not right, basically. But, and this is in the King James Version, the KJ, KJV Version of the Bible. And I remember her saying to me throughout her years of studying the Bible, never in the, so Jesus then came back. That was before Christ, the Old Testament was. And then when Jesus died and came back in the New Testament, there's nothing about homosexuality being wrong. So, you know, those who believe that it's wrong generally are talking about what's written in the Old Testament and not what's written in the New Testament after Christ. So they don't necessarily really know what they're speaking of. And so, as my grandmother always says to me, you know, and she's very vocal about it now and wears it with pride. Yeah, because she would be an Old Testament woman, right? I think that she's a Bible woman. So okay, so how the entire yeah, Bible, you know, and yeah, what did she tell you about it? And that's what she said. She said, you know, grandson, I love you as you are. You know, of course, you wanted me to have a wife and kids, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, she doesn't believe that God condemns me because of my sexuality. And uh, she taught me that, and that's what I believe. And my relationship with God is my relationship with God, and it's different than yours and anyone else's. And you had that conversation with her at a young age. I had it. Probably in around college. I see. So young enough to where it resonated, but not like in your preteens where it really kind of helped solidify your confidence. Right. I think in my teens and early age, because I did grow up in the church. My uncle was the minister. He was a pioneer minister in the AME church, which is the denomination I mentioned earlier. AME, African Methodist Episcopal is what it stands for. Are they like, they're not snake people, right? Snake charming. Like that's a, but that's a branch of Episcopalian. Oh no, that's. I don't know. That's a pop. Okay, sorry. Go on. I'm we'll get back sure. to you. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I'll think about it. <laughs> no, basically, it's Episcopalian and, and African. The African Methodists became because they broke off from Episcopalian because they were black people who mm-hmm. were studying the denomination. Mm-hmm. And because of slavery and what have you, it became AME. Mm-hmm. That's where that came from. But it okay. is basically the Episcopalian faith or denomination, if you will. Uh, but yeah, so for me growing up, I kind of was a loner. I've always been a loner. I, you know, I know a lot of people. Well, a lot of people know have always known me. I've always been, you know, walked to the beat of my own drum. I just, and I never really knew a lot of people's names. I still don't. Half the time when I'm talking to people, I don't know who I'm talking to, mm-hmm. or I'll just kind of laugh it off and like wait for them to say their name or wait for somebody in the group to say their name because they expect me to know it and mm-hmm. I just pretend like I do. So, or I'll ask them. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say, excuse me, what is your full name? Mm-hmm. And they'll say their first name. And I'll say, I know your first name, but what's your full name? You know, that's like a little trick I do. Look out I, for them, y'all. Sneaky. I'm talking to them. Speaking of them. So that's pretty, I mean, you know, I just grew up, you know, alone. I read a lot. Um, I was pretty artistic. Uh, and 
Yeah, to myself, which is which has been a very it's been a blessing in my life, actually. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your high school career and um, your social life a little bit, because I know you've got some friends that you've known since high school, so you mm -hmm. weren't completely a loner. Tell me a bit mm -hmm. about that experience for you um, and how that led you to where you are today a little bit. I know that's a very broad question, but um, I know you went to like a very specific high school, mm -hmm. an art school for a while, mm -hmm. right? So tell me a bit about that, your friends, your social life. So originally when I entered high school, I went to Brother Rice High School, which in 1991 had their own, they had a black and a white prom. It was a segregated wow. prom. And it was in Chicago in, in Chicago. It was on Oprah Winfrey show. It made headline news that in the nineties, there would still be a high school having a segregated prom. I was on Fox news because I was pretty outspoken. Uh, and, uh, they interviewed students from the kid from the school. And I was one of them as a sophomore <laughs> or freshman wow. or sophomore. And so I wasn't even going to prom, but my opinion was that here we are in 1991 having a segregated prom. My school was, 2% black uh, out of a 12% minority, 2% of those were black. So then it would have been school. like 15 of you all at this prom? Maybe so. I mean, no, I don't even know if there were that many, maybe, maybe wow. 15. And, and we're talking about 2% of the entire student, student body. body. Right. So, so talk about it. This was a slap in the face. This was yeah wasn't like black folks were saying yeah we're okay with this too because we have half of this school we can still turn up on our own this is yeah and it was being excluded it was basically about music it was music they did not want to play the music that the black kids wanted to hear at the prom so the black kids said that's okay we'll have our own mm -hmm. and they did you know they did and then they wound up putting it in the school uh bylaws that we can't have two proms anymore because so I mean, it did situation. make headline news and bring it shed a lot of light on this school. Well, so. yeah, negative light. Exactly. I'm sure, none, none of it was so. positive. Well, that's yeah, interesting. I couldn't imagine that. Has my high school career was nothing like that. Go on. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I actually, in my the end of my sophomore year, I went before the school board. I was pretty smart. I you know got really good grades and. But I was pretty militant, like I spoke out. It was a very segregated, very racist school, you know, and I was different. I had- uh, So you dealt with racism? Oh, absolutely, 100%. Chicago is probably one of the most racist cities and most segregated cities you'll ever go to, even to, to date. It See, and still I, is. I've felt like I've learned that on my own and I never knew knew that until just these past mm -hmm, few years. Mm -hmm. I always thought it was but, a very progressive, very diverse, I mean, you know, blended. Oh, no. Black people live here. White people live there. You know, Asian people live in this enclave. You know, people who migrate there from other continents, they have their territory. I mean, it's very, you know, where I live is probably a more culturally, there's an area called Hyde Park that's more culturally diverse, uh, which is where the interracial couples would go to live safely mm, okay uh and have their children and you said would go what's this like the 80s this is currently oh gotcha so that's where they do go yes Got they've it. been going there since i don't know when mm -hmm. uh, because it was a more culturally diverse area and so where they could live and have their children and it is what it is and people know um where i live in chicago I wouldn't say it's culturally diverse. It's more, it's younger and it's more diverse in that respect. And 
somewhat culturally diverse. But what I found recently is many of the blacks lease there. They don't own. Mm -hmm. I'm fortunate to own, but many don't. I've realized re recently. Why do you think that is? Well, it's systemic racism. Just, just like, bam, just that's just what boom. it is. They can't afford it. They're priced out. Uh huh. You know, I was fortunate, but again, I work in a business where, and even so, when I moved into my building, it wasn't until they saw me, you know, some of them saw me on television that they realized I wasn't a drug dealer. But that was the word going around as who is this 28 year old drug dealer? That's mm -hmm. how old I was when I bought the place. 28 year old drug dealer. You know, and this isn't like this a place. high rise with like beautiful views of the water. Like well, this is like well, yeah. not just no. You know, an apartment so somewhere. Right. He couldn't be an upwardly mobile. Talk, so let's move into what now. you do. Do let's talk about what you what you do. How you got to where you are. What you've done. Mm -hmm. You know what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Talk. Oh. What do you want me to say? I really know so, what to so, say. So I, tell I, me about your career and like how you got started in your career. Because you're known as the Lord of Beauty now. And so a lot of the TV spots that he's referring to are like a lot of news spots, lots of promotional spots, right? A lot of really rich and famous women know you for kind of helping them beautify. Am I, does this sound right? That is right. Could right. I like be your, could I do your PR? You could. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. You're hired at this, you know. All right. We'll see you later. Have a good you can moonlight. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So tell me, because I'm sure you fell into that. Like, I feel like when we spoke earlier, I think I was always led to believe that that's a passion of yours that you always knew you would, you know, find. Right. Yeah. But it also sounds like from your L.A. experience that you just kind of were seeing, you know. Well, I fell into celebrities. As a child, I always played with Barbie dolls, mm -hmm. like. I would hide and play with Barbie dolls. My mom didn't like openly let me play with them. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, and my uncle, I had an uncle, my mom's uncle, who's a great uncle of mine. They're 11 years apart. And um, he was like a, a male father figure to me. And he has a daughter, two daughters. One is 11 years older than I am. And then my mom's 11 years older than she is. So that's kind of interesting in our family. Yeah. Anyway, dynamic. And that's already three generations, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but he had a daughter who's close to age with closer to age with me she's mm -hmm. five and a half years older and or four and a half something like that anyway we're really close and i used to play with her dolls and stuff and mm -hmm. you know i always wanted to do hair and i always wanted to dress you know women and do their makeup and so i would do it with barbie dolls when i was younger i would sneak if i weren't over at my cousin's house which i spent a lot of time like i said my mother was a single parent mm -hmm. and she worked a lot and then you know went out and stuff um so i spent a lot of time there and I would play with their dolls and then um, I would go home and I would like sneak and buy one or whoever the neighborhood girls were. They would ask them if I could see their dolls and take them home and like hide and play with them. But it, but you keep saying hide every single step of the way that you had to play with the barber. You had to be hidden. It had to be hidden. Wow. My uncle didn't mind me playing with them at his house. Mm -hmm. He was probably the only one who allowed it and kind of somewhat encouraged it. He didn't care. His thing was if he wants to play with dolls, let him play with dolls. So this is interesting because even then, not that I'm assuming that you should have shame. I think we all have shame. It doesn't matter how good you've had it. But even through all those moments where you forced to hide who you were, uh, still didn't induce shame, still didn't start to build the blocks of like... I never hid who I was. Mm -hmm. I'm fortunate in that. I never really hid who I was. It wasn't until probably high school that I started to feel like, well, maybe I should pull back. I mean, I was pretty outspoken anyway, but I thought maybe I should pull back. I had my first 
real girlfriend in high school mm -hmm. and you know all those those types of things heterosexual things that you're supposed to do but i knew it never felt right and mm -hmm. it wasn't me mm -hmm. so it ended with high school mm -hmm. and i became more myself i went to an art school in my junior year after i went before the <laughs> disciplinary board but my mom came with at this school that was disciplinary board what happened yeah i'm telling you that i wound up uh i'm trying to remember what happened i think i had a fight mm -hmm. I mean, that's a what it sounds like fight i don't don't remember you on, trying to tell me that i would remember. go ahead no, i had a fight we we used to do something called a walkathon uh-huh and i had a fight and i had, my grandfather at the time was alive my mother's father and he used to tell me stuff he'd be like well you know grandson you don't always have to fight with your fist, fight with your words. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these white boys used to use the N-word like 90 going north when I was in high school, if wow. you will. So my grandfather told me one time, he says, well, when they call you that, you don't have to fight them. Say this. And he said, when they call you a nigger, tell them you'd be one too if your mama had the man she wanted. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was one of the things my grandfather told me. And I remembered it and I still retain it to this day. We're talking about 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said it one day in the hallway and the hall like stopped. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure you, you know, got some reaction was, from I, that. Of course I did. Yeah. And he's like, they'll always be looking at their mother to see who she's looking at when they go to the grocery store. So anyway, real funny. Uh -huh. But so one time I was on the walkathon, we, had, we would do this thing to raise money for charity and we would do a walkathon. So I had, a, I was walking on a walkathon and this guy came and he called me a freak. And I beat his ass, literally, you know, and, <laughs> you know, it was just crazy because I wound up, we wound up both getting suspended. They weren't going to suspend him, even though he started the fight. But my mom was like, oh, no, you're suspending my son. You better suspend him, too. Yeah. Then we wound up, we were going to sue the school. So my mom, they called me before the disciplinary board. My mother came up there with an attorney. Wow. And they backed down. They were just like, okay. And she was like, we'll make this a public yeah thing you yeah. guys just had a prom last year uh -huh. black and white and now you're trying to kick my black son out of school because he defended himself right because a group of white boys came to jump on him and then all the black boys came running back because it was just like a fiasco and so um i mean they had written freak on my locker because in high school i used to wear like the cross color remember cross colors of course like the real baggy pants i used to wear those and then yeah. i had you know long hair like it would That's just what be was right at my, exactly right on my collar. But you know, these are Irish Catholic boys mm -hmm. from an area in Chicago called Mount Greenwood and Beverly, which is Beverly Hills of Chicago. Okay. Um, so, so they're like polo wearing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Ties to school. But some of them oh, are, wow. were acid tripping. That's what we had to wear as part of our, our dress code. Oh, you guys wear a tie uniform. Every, no uniform, but we had to wear a tie every day. Wow. Uh, so I would have my tie and my wide leg jeans and my, you know, I was like vintage. I was like, I would wear like a vintage. You were plaid. different. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And my like black, I've always worn black eyeglasses. So I had like the Malcolm X looking black glasses and the straight hair and like, you know, so yeah. <laughs> and I was one of like in the 2%. So anyway, my, one of my closest friends, I had two, uh, three, Darnell, Morocco and Milo. Milo and I are still very, very close. You, you know, mm -hmm. he lives in, um, I've told you about him. He lives mm -hmm. in, uh, well, he used to live in Northern California. Anyway, he's like backpacking around the country with his partner, uh, now, uh, but at any rate, and then Morocco and Darnell, and we were all close, just the three of us. And, um, we're all still pretty, 
Mm -hmm. We're all still pretty close to this day. Mm -hmm. So my high school years, that was my high school years. I went to an academy for the arts, which is where I kind of started to come out of my shell. I always wanted to be an actor. Mm, okay. Musical theater. Because we were talking about beauty, so there's so acting in there where, too. Well, originally, I wanted to do hair as a child. Then I wound up, but because my family didn't encourage that, mm -hmm. I wound up saying, okay, what's the next best thing I can do that's close to that? So that they would accept, and that was acting you know, and or musical theater. So they were, my mom was behind me becoming an actor because she's mm -hmm. like, oh, my son will be rich then. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, so she encouraged that behavior and I went to the Academy for the Arts. There was no structure there. So she sent me back for my wow. senior year to Brother Rice to graduate. And then I left there and I got accepted. I graduated high school at 16. So I wound up, I, didn't I, know that. I turned 17 like a month later and I went to college at 17, but everybody else was like 18 and 19. So I was the youngest probably on campus. And one year was like four years when you're that age. Exactly. Yeah. So here I was at Howard University in at Washington, DC at 17, just 17, you know, and everybody could go to the clubs and stuff. So I had to get a fake ID so I can go to the clubs, tracks and all that. Mm -hmm. And I was there for a year and a half, two years. And then I studied um, theater arts I was there with Chadwick Boseman, actually. He was in my class. Rest in peace. Yeah. You and know, we remember, knew each other. Remember when we saw him the other day? We saw or him. Or not the other day. That was like At what? the Four Seasons Hotel. That was that January of this that year? That was uh, December. Uh, December of last yeah, year. Yeah, and he didn't look well. Exactly. And yeah, he was and with his remember, wife. And you said, too, you're like, there's something. You're like, I said, I there's something wrong with him. Yeah. I wonder if he's sick. All right, go And on. I didn't say anything to him, remember? Yeah, of I course. Was going to, oh, I was no, going you could have because you knew him. Yeah, yeah. I could have, but I didn't. I kind of like turned away because I knew something was wrong and I didn't want to get into that. Yeah. With him. I heard Malcolm X, <clears throat> um, excuse me. <laughs> I heard Denzel Washington paid for his school career. Yeah, he paid for, I can't remember what it was, but yes, he was, in, he was influential at, mm -hmm. his, some, at some point in his academia. Yeah, okay, go on. Uh, so I went to Howard and I loved it. And then I wound up getting, because I studied theater and then I studied fashion and mm -hmm. journalism. And I just wasn't feeling the vibe of college. You know, my mom had bought me a brand new car and surprised me and I felt bad. I wanted to work for Oprah Winfrey. I wanted to, you know, I just didn't know. I just, and I wound up, I was always pretty much a, an A student. And my grades slipped, they started slipping and I was getting, pardon me, getting depressed. And I wound up speaking to one of my professors who was just like, you know, I could lose my job for telling you this. And she just went on this long rant about her mm -hmm. and what happened in her life. And she wound up working for Essence Magazine, which was like the Bible for black women at one point mm -hmm. when Susan Taylor was running it. And um, pardon me. And, you know, she encouraged me to, to see the world, to leave college. She did. So I went back home at the time. Uh, my mentor was Oprah Winfrey's makeup artist, Roosevelt Carwright and Reggie Wells. And, Reggie, would, I would go down to like Harpo and hang out and stuff. And I really wanted to intern there. And at the time, Oprah didn't know if she was going to cancel her show or not mm -hmm. or stop back then. I think this was in the late 90s. No, mid 90s, mid 90s, because I think there was talk then about her ending her show and going on to act or whatever. But mm -hmm. they wound up starting up the, the internship program. I did not intern. I used to hang out there. But then I wound up getting a job. Uh, I wound up leaving one summer, going to hair school and getting while I was home for summer school I started hair school and stuff and then I wound up um I didn't go back to school I wound up doing this internship getting this internship at Jerry Springer as a hair makeup and wardrobe intern okay that was my very first job Jerry. 
Generic, Are you kidding me? Nope. I never knew this. And I'll never forget that this was the start of my career. And I wound <clears throat> up, I'll never forget, I was watching a show one day, and this is why I always, I'll say to people when they ask me, how did you get started? You just have to have a dream and just start. Yeah, just start, start doing, doing it. it. Yeah. Uh, I was watching the Jerry Springer show one day, and I had been frustrated with trying to get Oprah's people to let me come on in and work instead of just hanging out, you know? Uh, and I wound up just back then you could call on the phone <laughs> and I called on the phone and I got a lady named Annette Grundy, who I'm still really good friends with. She was the senior producer of the show. And I watched and I said, Hey, I do hair, makeup, and I want to do wardrobe. Can I come down there? I would love to work there. And she said, Oh my God, the nerve of you. Sure. Can you come down for an interview on Friday? I said, of course. I went Did she down literally there. say the nerve of you? Well, she didn't say that, but I could hear but it in yeah. her tone of voice. Cause that's, she was just kind of shocked. You know, talk and, about gusto. Yeah. And I mean, because I was adamant about I wasn't going to take no for an answer. Yeah. So I literally went down for an interview, put on my suit, got my briefcase. My grandmother took me down to Marshall Fields, bought me a suit. I think a Claiborne suit. I think I still have it to this day in my closet. And uh, I went down for the interview and literally got the job. I started that Monday. She says, can you be down here to start on Monday? I said, sure. So I went down and I was a hair, makeup and wardrobe intern. For three months, I started working with a girl named Kim Cleveland, who became a makeup artist working for me when I started my own business later in life. And um, I worked there for three months, turned six months, and then I was offered a job. I didn't take it. I wound up coming to moving to L.A. Mm. And so they wanted to keep you and you said, no, it's time for me. I'm going to follow my gut and go west. And my friend Annette Grundy wound up moving out here to L.A. at the same time. Her and oh, Kim wow. Cleveland, who I just mentioned, because she was coming out here to be senior producer on the uh, uh, Vibe. Used to have, Vibe magazine used to have a television show. I remember it. And yes. I forgot who the I think Sinbad was the first host. Mm -hmm. But then after Sinbad, it went to, I think, Chris Spencer or someone and did, else. Or I thought Fle Flex did. Not Flex Alexander. Oh, okay. Chris Spencer. Chris Spencer. That's what I'm thinking. Okay, gotcha. And it wound up getting canceled and stuff. And then she wound up going on to do other stuff. And, you know, here I was in L.A. And I started working for Shaka Khan. My, my, prior to that, somewhere in the middle of all of this, I went with my mentor, Reggie Wells, who's a famous makeup artist. He's retired now. But at the time, um, I wound up going with him to New York for the Grammy Awards in 1997. Wow. I graduated I, high school like in 1994. At the Grammys? In 97, I went as his assistant. Uh -huh. So I graduated high school and started college in 94. So by 97, 97, uh, my cousin was singing background with Aretha Franklin. I had met Aretha Franklin, all this stuff. So I knew I wanted to be in enter entertainment in uh -huh. some way, shape or form. And you had these already these kind of embedded connections. Somewhat, I mean, yes. Well, your cousin, yeah, for, for starters. One, for Go ahead. Who just recently passed away. Her funeral was a couple months ago. Anyway, um, bless her soul. Um, <clears throat> she was more like an aunt to me. Was that the woman so in her early sixties you were telling me about? Mm -hmm. wow. I showed you her picture. She's yeah, yeah. like seventy, early seventy. Gotcha. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, so where was I? So so Reggie took me under his wings, and I went with him in ninety-seven. And he told me meet him at the Waldorf Astoria. I met him at the Waldorf Astoria. Just bougie. Go ahead. <clears throat> and um, his client was there, so he says uh, he calls everybody Mary. He says Mary, go to this is the room number six something. And I was like okay, so I went. He's like, and ring the bell when you get there. This is before cell phones. There were no text messages. You right. just, you know, landline and then you go do it. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, Meet me there at this time. Right, and hear the instructions and you retain them. Mm -hmm. Or you write yourself a note. And that's what I did. I went to, to the room. I rang the bell and 
here comes Shaka Khan to open the door. I'm like staring there, stunned, like, are you kidding me? And she's like looking at me like, yes, how can I help you? I was like, I'm Reggie Wells' assistant. <laughs> I'm Reggie Wells' assistant. <laughs> I just thought, because I, I know her through you, obviously, yeah. so I'm envisioning this, you know. This you know. little woman with all this big hair. <laughs> And I'm like, this is Shaka Khan. Yeah. Like, this is at the height of her career, too. So, mm -hmm. like, in 94, she's like, I mean, 97, she's like, huge, huge. And so I'm just like, okay. So she's like, well, he's not here yet. Come on in here and go on in there and sit down. And I was like, oh, okay. So I go in, and there's this guy there who's, you know, making her outfit for the evening because she had to go to the Grammys to mm. open the show and present and sing and all that stuff. So I'm like, okay. So I'm like a fish out of water. I'm like, every bit of 18 years old. So he didn't give you any prequel, no prelude, no, this is what's coming, 19, just be here 19. and ring the doorbell. Yeah, gotcha. so he came a little bit after that. I'm sitting there for about maybe 15 minutes and he comes running in and then, you know, I set up his stuff and he goes in the back and he does her makeup. Mm -hmm. And then he comes back, I pack everything up, we leave. Mm -hmm. We're waiting for our hairstylist to come. He didn't come. And then we wound up going to the Grammy. So we're in, a, back then they had stretch limousines. So. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people use those anymore, but <laughs> everything's SUV now. But anyway, so we're in a stretch limo and I'm sitting backwards facing her mm -hmm. and she's facing me like we're facing each other now and I'm riding this way. Mm -hmm. And so she's talking to me and she's like looking at me and she's like, she's like, you're really pretty. She was like, you're too pretty to be my nephew. So I'm gonna call you my nephews. Yeah, I had long hair and I was that big and I had on this Dolce Gabbana suit. My so she already fell in love with you within minutes. And so, you know, and so how can I retain all of this? This is so crazy that I remember all this. Anyway. Good. I'm glad this is the fun part of these conversations. Yeah. I still yeah. have that Navy blue suit, that Dolce suit. I can't get one arm in now, mm -hmm. but, um, I will again, I will again. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, so, so we're riding and we get to the awards. So now everybody jumps out. Her publicist is in the car, her manager. You know, they all get out the car, Reggie, and then it's just Shaka and I sitting in the car. And she says, you're gonna walk this red carpet with me. And I said, okay, okay. And I'll never forget, I had on these little black glasses with blue, that's when they were wearing the blue tinted mm -hmm. uh, lenses. So I get out the car and she gets out and there's Shaka, Shaka, and it's this long red carpet. And back then the paparazzi was on each side. Mm -hmm. And there's like this long red carpet to the door. And so we get out and she gets out and she says, come on with me. And I jump out with her and she grabs my arm and they're like, Shaka, Shaka. And I got out and it's like, Prince, Prince. It was so hilarious. People thought you were Prince. They thought I was Prince. So, <laughs> which goes to show you how skinny I was at the time. So anyway, uh, they thought I was Prince. And so we walked the red carpet and thank God she had me under her arms because the lights flash so much that they are blinding. Uh -huh. You can't see what's in front of you. You uh -huh. can't see anything because the flashes. It's just burning your, just, your retina. Just it burn, totally, burn, you burn, can't burn, see. Burn. Right. Bless you. Pardon me. Thank yeah. you. And because she's so used to that, she just led the way. And the first person I saw as we clear past these lights was Maxwell because this is was his first oh, yeah. year of being out. And I just remember this big hair and him uh -huh. looking also like a fish out of water. Uh -huh. Like, wow. He was amazed at all of the different people, as was I. Yeah. You I know. mean, it's the Grammys. I mean, this Pardon isn't me. even the Grammy after party. This is this it. This is prior to the Grammy starting. So all the stars. And yeah. these, this is... I mean, guys, I'm going, we're talking about before social media. Mm -hmm. These were real stars. Mm -hmm. You know, Diana Ross is coming in. Whitney Houston was right next to us. Right. We shared like a dresser. 
Right. We shared a dressing room with all of them. Oh wow! And and I'm picturing, you know, they're 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 lining these stretch limos up so each person could come out and kind of get their moment. Right. I mean, it was it's the kind of stuff that we remember seeing in movies Mm -hmm. that were made in the '90s, Mm -hmm. etc. Okay, so go on. So we go in. I meet Whitney Houston. I meet Diana Ross. I meet Aretha Franklin. This is all just when you went to the Waldorf to go meet him, and this all happened in one night. Absolutely. Damn. And so we're in Shaka's dressing room. Her hairdresser had not shown up. This is back when, you know, they had butane curling irons they used to sell in Walgreens, you know. And so she had the coach. Coach was really big back then. The bag. Coach bags. Mm -hmm. And so she had the duffel bag. And so she had a butane curling iron in her duffel bag and they came, you know, the stage manager came, AD came to say, hey, we need you. You know, they gave the 20 minute call and her hairstylist still wasn't there. So I wound up having to do her hair. She looks at me, she says, do my hair. She pulls the butane curling iron out of her bag and I wound up doing her hair. This isn't just, I wound up doing her hair while Diana Ross was in the bathroom in there in the dressing room, put on her gown, Mm -hmm. evening gown. And I did Shaka's hair and she looked in the mirror and she said, you're coming with me on the road. You want to come on the road? I said, sure. She says, okay, you're coming with me on the road to do my hair. And I looked at Diana Ross and she was wearing her hair straight with a purple streak. I don't know why I remember this. This black strapless dress with the white ruffles and real fitted with a trumpet bottom. Anyway, um, and she's like, will you fix my hair for me too? And I'm watching her assistant take all her diamonds out. It was just like amazing to see all this. I mean, you know, and then Aretha Franklin sitting on the sofa and Whitney Houston's literally in the room next to us. And we go out in the hall and she comes out and she's like, Shaka, they're friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just Lauren Hill, the Fugees, they were there. Mm -hmm. It was just all backstage. It was just like, I was just like, wow, this is no one would ever believe this. But you didn't go run to like the closest wastebasket and throw up or you didn't piss yourself. You were totally calm, cool and collected. Pretty much. You yeah. know, a girlfriend of mine, Erica Connor, she's a, a movie producer. She did the movie. The last thing was, well, not the last thing, but one of the most famous was Idlewild, mm-hmm. the movie with yeah. Outcast. And she and I, a dear friend, she worked with John Singleton as well and Hype Williams. And she said to me something back in my 20s when she was working for John Singleton. When I got the job with, I wound up working with, with Shaka for some years. Then Patty LaBelle asked me to work with her. And I was just like, this is crazy, Erica. I was working at Warner Brothers because we were off. You know, they would do tours back then and Shaka was off on tour. We were done with our tour. So she was just enjoying her downtime. Mm -hmm. And she would go into the studio at that point in time. So we were down and I needed a gig. And so I would work at Warner Brothers in between. And, you know, that's how I wound up doing TV production and learning all that. Mm -hmm. And so Patti LaBelle offered me a job. And I was just like, oh, I was kind of torn because I was with Shaka and, you Mm -hmm. know. You know, what one diva to the next, they're all friends now, but you know. So I wound up taking the job and I was just like, wow, but it's just weird, Erica. Like I don't feel any kind of way, going back to your point about the hurling in the in the trash can. And I didn't feel any kind of way. And she said, That's because remember this, when you're where you're supposed to be, you don't have any feeling about it. Like mm-hmm. you don't feel like it's, you know, like wow because mm-hmm. you're where you're supposed to be yeah. and it's comfortable for you. And I remember that. So as I started to transition throughout my career and make changes, I always remembered that. I never really got excited, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I never really got excited. I think the most excitement I had was when I worked with Michael Jordan's wife. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I probably felt excitement Mm-hmm. 
but it really wasn't. And even then, it really wasn't excitement. It was just kind of like, I got excited after people told me the magnitude of what I was doing. I was like, what? And they're like, they're because of how George much money he has. Because of how much money he has. And that's yeah. what it always is with people. It's always uh -huh. about the money. And for me, it's never been about the money. It's mm -hmm. always been about doing what I love to do. You know, I've never thought, oh my gosh, if I do this, I'll make this kind of money. Or if I do that, I make that kind of, I never knew how much money. Back then people didn't really, I mean, even the career that I had was not something you spoke about. Mm -hmm. Like there was no social media. You know, and you didn't tell people, go around telling them, hey, I do Shaka Khan's hair, makeup, and clothes, or I do Patty LaBelle's hair, makeup, and clothes, or I do Juanita George. You just didn't do that. That was yeah. just something that was private. Right. You just didn't share that with people, you know. And again, there wasn't like, a platform to share it. There wasn't. And uh -huh. even when there, when, when, when there was one created, I didn't know how to go on and say it. I mean, like the people I worked with were legit. Mm -hmm. They weren't the housewives. So you didn't, you, you just didn't share their business back then you had confidentiality agreements everything mm -hmm. was confidential mm -hmm. now everybody tells everything and it's I'm still that, pretty private it still should be confidential that's just it should be that's just part of being classy okay. all right i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna turn this conversation uh, just a little bit but mm -hmm. before we do that so your hair and makeup and, and styling is what you you've been doing in your 20s and I'm, I'm assuming a good part of your 30s but now you're doing something different do you want to mention what you do now or no no, I don't mind. Because you went from doing hair and makeup to now managing her career, mm -hmm. which is really cool, I think, because you're able to keep, you know, her kind of <clears throat> the millennials. Mm -hmm. You're keeping the millennials' attention on her, you mm -hmm. know, and even mm -hmm. younger. So mm -hmm. I just kind of stole that from you. But mm -hmm. so that's what you do now. Yes. I was promoted about two and a half years ago now mm -hmm. to be her manager and business partner. But throughout her career, like her sister managed her for many years. Then she went through a transitional period for about, you know, three to five years of trying to find the right person mm -hmm. for her and uh, and landed with me. And what we both discovered is that she had been training me from 19 on, mm. you know, now 43. She had really been grooming me all these years. That's an interesting way to look at for it. For this position. Yeah. And she nor I knew that. And it she was, was a Black Panther, right? In her day, she was. Yeah. We in her early, early that. years. So let's talk a bit about her influence as far as any influence as far as that. I mean, because I don't think she's really militant. I don't want to talk too much about her. This is about you. But no, like, no, I don't mind. Let's segue into like some of that, right? How mm -hmm. is that translated? Have you all dealt with um, prejudice as you all say are on the road? You know what I mean? Because I want to move the conversation into you shared with me some of the how you translated the protests and how a lot of that stuff affected you. And I want to get to that part of the conversation before we run out of time. Okay. Here's the thing. I think that yes, prejudice and racism affects all of us. It definitely affects me. It probably affects me more when I'm on my own and people don't know who I am mm -hmm. more so than when I'm with her. Mm. I'm, she has faced prejudice and racism as well. Mm -hmm. And I'll let her tell her own story. We will all see that in her biopic and things that are coming out soon mm -hmm. that we're working on. But for me, of course, I've experienced it. I experienced it in high school, as I mentioned earlier. Um, blatantly, I've experienced it in dating. Uh, I've experienced it in... Um, I experience it like anybody else does. It's mm -hmm. just different when you have the kind of career I have, like, and when you're with celebrity constantly, everything is already kind of, it's, you kind of live in a bubble. Right. So. And you're not getting real authentic. 
interactions with people. Right. Unless it's just me out on my own. But then my life is such that, you know, in Chicago, people tend to know the places I go again, it's still kind of somewhat in a bubble. Mm -hmm. You know, I go from my house into my garage, my garage into wherever I'm going, Mm -hmm. you know, for the exception of that time that you were on a bike. And I want you to tell that story about COVID when you, when you rolled into the protests, right? I rolled into the protest. And give us some detail because you and I had some conversations prior to that and then you kind of went into this and then you kind of, I think that you had some interactions and uh, dialogue with yourself and came to some new conclusions, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I often, yes, it's no mystery that I don't believe that racism is ever going to go away. Mm-hmm. I've said that and I still stand by that. I don't believe it. It's just too ingrained in us. It's too ingrained. I mean, and if it does go away, it'll be I don't know how many hundreds of years. I feel like we're towards the end of the world now, so I don't know. You feel is that your from from what you've learned from religion, or that's just your gut? A little both, a little both. I think the Book of Revelation speaks to the times we're living through now. No way, or is this like the end of the times? You know, I mean, who knows? I don't know, but I know that the Book of Revelation speaks about these times that we're in, um, and you know, the, and it's not as bad as it's going to get. But I do believe that when it comes to racism, you know, it's something that's just going to exist. We all have prejudice, prejudices. Totally. And that's a big know. part of this, this uh, podcast going. Absolutely. And, and so many of them are, you know, subconscious race, race, racial things uh-huh. or racial uh, prejudices uh-huh. that we're not even aware of, Right. you know? So, and that's why I'm saying, and I don't think we necessarily really mean anything by it, but that's just, What's ingrained in us? Do you think that's uh, that that behavior is excusable, or you think it's just it's it is what it is? I don't know if we can call it excusable or not. I think it is what it is. Okay. It's just what it is, and I just think that there are differences among people culturally, and it's because this, bl- this is where I want to challenge people to to make those small changes within themselves. If they if they can identify what their prejudice or bias is, okay, I'm aware of it. Now let me delve into that, right? Because I mm-hmm. have acknowledged some of my own and I really mm-hmm. try to consciously not have those thoughts or move into the, that space of thought, mm-hmm. right? Go, right. Ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I think, uh, like I said, I think if it's pointed out in conversation, like if you notice something I say that's prejudice and you point it out, then I become more conscious of that the next time I get ready to say it. Ah, interesting. You know, um, which a lot of people do. I think I had a guest on before and she was talking about how she was around a white group of people. Somebody made a black joke and then she was like, um, I don't, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And like put him on blast. And I think she said that it, I, she saw that it kind of made him think. Mm-hmm. That's what, you know. Yeah. I, I think it's things like that, but I don't know that people, I don't know that even in joking people who are doing it, white people, whoever it is, I don't know if they're necessarily trying to be racist they just think that that's funny right they don't know that that's hurtful right and that's part of the subconscious which is what's part of the subconscious so my thing is there's so much of that that i don't know if that's something that can ever be corrected Mm -hmm. and again it's still passed on from generation to generation because somebody's grandfather's still alive Mm -hmm. you know so who who grew up in a time where there was segregation what do you think about racism within the black community what about it? It was. A, I mean, let's get, let's give it a scale of one to ten. Or I mean, can you equate it to the to the white experience as far as black people being racist towards white people? I think black racism is a direct response to having been enslaved. Interesting. I don't think that black people in 
partly partly because of religion. I don't think that we are innately racist. You know, one of my closest friends, Milo, said asked me asked the question of me once before in high school. He said, "Do you think white people are innately racist?" And I said, "I don't think anyone's innately anything." Hmm. I think that we're taught it. Mm-hmm. And I believe we're taught that at a young age. Now, I think so. Yeah, I think the black people tend to be racist as a as a defense mechanism more so than that's just how we are naturally. Mm. You know, I would you would would you would you bet your life on that? I would. Gotcha. I would. Yeah, I definitely would. Yeah, it's interesting. And I ask that because I think that as it's easy to try to identify what's going on with us as far as you know, A to B, right? Mm-hmm. What might be uh, some racial issues we have and, but trying to figure out where they come from or, or, or connect to how, you know, mm-hmm. where I, that begins and the inception of that is, uh, it's a lot of work. And I would even say, even within our community, we have so many inter prejudices, you know, you're lighter than I am. So, you know, you think you're better than me, all of that kind of stuff. These like, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, insecurities that, Many of us stem to have yeah. some of us who are color struck, you know, it's just, and it all stems from black culture in America. We don't have, we don't know what our culture is. Mm. We don't, what is the black cult? What is our, our history, mm-hmm. you know, as black Americans, what is it? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't hear my white friends saying, oh, she's lighter than you, or he's more peach than I am or whatever, or they can't come over here. You know, I'll, I'll never forget in high school when I was at the arts academy when we were dealing with racism, they took, had all of us, the entire school, because there weren't that many of us at the school was ridiculously expensive. Um, We couldn't afford it, which is also why I was out of there after the first year. Uh, It was like $7,500 a year anyway, which was a lot of money then. Yeah. Um, They broke us up into, into groups, you know, those, you know, men on this side, women on this side, black men on this side, black women on this side, black, men with brown eyes on this side, black men who are biracial kids, interracial kids here, interracial who are Irish here, interracial who are German and something else there. I mean, those who have blue eyes there, those who have green eyes there. I mean, they broke it down to the point that there were only like two or three of us, sometimes one one of us in a group. And they said, if you're going to be racist and prejudiced, these are the only people you can speak to in your group. It was the most... I mean, eye-opening experience. So for me. right, and it was a learning experience. It was a learning experience. This is me. an exercise. Exactly. Wow. Which, to me, kind of breaks down within even within our racial construct. There's still differences among us. Uh huh. You know. So well, we were just talking about this earlier this afternoon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. People are going to inherently try to you know uh, press somebody down. Mm-hmm. Classism very much there. Exactly. Because what happens when the rich black man is in the room with a poor white man and mm-hmm. he says you whatever, but okay, I'm going to leave here and you're going to go back to your neighborhood and I'm going to leave and I'm going to go with the people you want to be around because yeah. they're my neighbors. Right. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it's just. And I, I mean, I hate to be so blunt and be so curt with that part of the conversation. I just know that like, again, your upbringing kind of being on the more fluent side, being in a school that was obviously predominantly is an understatement as far as, you know, how many white folks attended um, and just, you know, 
we all have our different experiences and perspective on what racism looks like and how it feels mm -hmm. uh, across the board. It's shitty, right? Um, but I, th I think that you experienced more racism than I would have imagined you would have. Oh, yeah. um, but it's nice that you have this bubble. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll never forget one time I was at a club. This was within like, like the last 10 years. I dated this guy. He was a pilot, white guy. And he, uh, Greg, and I'll never forget, hey, I had gone out to meet, hi, Greg. I had gone out with him to meet some friends of his. We weren't dating at the time. I had met him out. Mm -hmm. Where were we? I can't remember. Anyway, long and short of the story is I met him out and a group of his friends, like maybe three or four of them, we were all out. We had been in the bar. We were speaking, talking, all that. And they were all, you know, kind of like, okay, until we got outside. And when we got outside, I had a brand new BMW, black tenant windows, very flashy car, uh, very expensive car. And he was staring at the car and I just continued my conversation. I didn't say anything. And it wasn't until I got ready to leave. And I said, okay, guys, well, I'll see you later. And then I, the uh, valet gave me my keys and I hit, he hit the thing and gave me my keys. And the guys, one of the guys says, is it, whose car is this? Is this your car? And I said, yes, it's my car. And he says, oh, and you can see, you can literally, you can literally see on his face that he wished he had been more invested in the conversation one the evening because mm. he was a little distant. So then he, once he saw that you were, had something, he, a little bit of regret was there. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. It was so, and I was just like, wow. So much so that Greg even mentioned it to me when, when I left. And he wow. was just like, wow. He was like, did you see, I can't remember the guy's name. Mm -hmm. But I was just like, yeah, it's so interesting. You noticed too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Um, wow. And I'm sure you have, as we all do, several examples of that. I mean, even with me, with, you know, my partnership or ownership in small business, I mean, mm -hmm. people, you know, oh, you, you own this place? Mm -hmm. You? Like, uh, yeah, me, or you drive this car. You, yeah. Or even when they just, people will just drive by you and look at you funny in your car. Like, mm -hmm. yes, black people can have nice shit too. Yeah. Um, all right. So we've kind of moved the format around a little bit. And again, I think that was inevitable because of our relationship, but tell me a bit about, I want to get to the part of, as far as solution is concerned, right? How, as far as hope is, you sound, you said, you know, Armageddon's on the way, the end of the world's almost here, you know, that's scary stuff. I mean, do you really believe that? Do you think that there is some, what, what side of the coin are you on with that? Well, do, is there, are you hopeful where you, you know, if you had kids, would you be worried? I will say going back to the question you asked earlier, a few minutes ago, which is, you know, when I got on my bicycle and I rode around the neighborhood, first of all, when all this started, COVID, a lot of that, I kind of went through a lightweight depression on my own. You know, I was used to traveling constantly and being gone and this and the other. And here I was, didn't even know, you know, all the riots were going on. I had no idea because I had not turned on my television in months. So I literally, I was reading a lot and just being with myself a lot, meditation. Mm -hmm. So I got on my bike and I went for a ride. And literally there were all these cars out on the street. I didn't know what was going on. And I literally pulled over, I called a friend and I found out, oh my gosh, the protest. And that's when I got up, I became arrested on what was going on. And I literally was moved to tears. And I was moved to tears because I saw so many young, and when I say young, I mean in their twenties and their teens, young kids and people from all walks of life, all different cultures, 
fighting for black lives matters black lives matter and it just moved me to tears because in my day that never would have happened we had the million man march which was Mm -hmm. predominantly black Mm -hmm. it was all black Mm -hmm. men in dc i was in college then and there and did it you know and so there i mean i was just like wow this is really interesting this is really interesting and i was moved to tears so when it comes to solutions is there hope i believe there is hope i just wish that the country wasn't run by old white men Mm -hmm. you know because unfortunately that's what keeps us from moving forward to me yeah uh politics has a tendency to hold us back and as long as there are politics and older, the old regime of people are mm-hmm. in place, mm-hmm. we're gonna to continue to have that their agenda pushed, which mm-hmm. is divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. And, and greed. You know, and so I believe until that shifts and changes, there's not gonna be, I think it's just kind of gonna be what it is. Uh, hope, do I believe that the world's coming to an end? I do, I believe, but I believe all things come to an end. You know, just like people die all the time, why would we not all die? makes sense you know am i afraid did you ask no 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 i mean i wanted to get you know both sides of the coin on that one and again kind of like do you really actually believe that the end of the world is coming um and yes and then on the other side of that coin can you be hopeful for the future um generally speaking pulling racism or prejudice out of it uh you know just with the times that we're living in covid living in a pandemic seeing this has all been new this is a first for everybody you know unless you're over over 80 you know what i mean uh you'd spanish flu for some folks in europe but um you know what i mean it's like they would have to be 98 because that was in 1922 there you go. You know, see, that's why I see. That's why I went with eighty because right. I knew that I was safe with that number because right. my math wasn't that quick. Uh, um, actually, they we have the hundred and two. I'm sorry. Okay, look. Okay, now you're just boasting. Okay, we yeah. get it. No, I'm just kidding. But um, all right. So, I'm. This is my last question for you. Okay. Okay. And it's gonna. It's ties in with what we just spoke about. So I know how you feel about the end of the world, but it's just a lot of this. I think is just because of what you've learned, um, right? It's what I learned, but I mean, Some everybody's fighting everywhere. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, but let's talk. I want you to focus a little more on the hopeful side. Okay. Can you give sure. me a give me a minute on that? I mean, I live in hope every day. Every mm-hmm. day that we get up is an, is an opportunity. You know, I mean, every what day keeps you is in hope. that space. What do you do to keep yourself in that space? Because you are a happy person by nature. How come these realities don't scare you if it is the end of the world? Because I live my life fully every single day of it. And whenever it ends, it ends. I'm not like, I'm not one of those people saying, I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. I do every goddamn thing I want to do every day. Like, I don't, like, I don't have any regrets. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't. And I thank God that my life is what it's been because I have lived without regrets. I really have. The only regret I have is that I wish I had been more in tune with uh, love, like meaning uh, 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 not agape love because I've embraced that well, but romantic love. Mm. That's the one thing I have not focused on in my life because career and everybody else and their needs have always been more important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been fulfilled in that, if you will. I so it. I have no regrets about any of those things, but yeah, I mean, everything, I live my life fully already. And you know what, when it's over, it's over. Mm-hmm. 
that's it. I don't live in fear. I don't live with worry. You know, I live every day (laughs) and that's it. When it's over, it's over. If you were to give the listeners and viewers one kind of um, action, one kind of solution that can keep them in a space of hope, what would that be? Do what you love to do every day, because if you do what you love, there will be no animosity anywhere in your heart. You will be able to forgive a little more easier. Uh, what if you work at a bank? How do you know? What if you don't know what it is that you love to do? Then you should try and figure out what it is you love to do. You know, we spend time doing other things. We spend time drinking and partying mm-hmm. and don't make any excuse for that. Mm-hmm. So my thing is, if you really want to get in touch with what you love to do, you will. Just like you do anything else. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. You heard it first. That's so newsy. I like that. Just do it. We're an hour on the nose. Look at us. All right. Just consummate professionals. Um, so again, I was looking forward to this. Obviously, now viewers and listeners know why, mm-hmm. right? It was just, uh, you got a lot to offer. We'll get you back on the show. Uh, always, you know, follow us, please, and like us on all social media platforms. That's important so that you can uh, be aware or alerted when we are going to bring you some new content. Again, a big thanks to George Robert Fuller. Find him on uh, also, again, all social media platforms. Uh, what's your website? www.shakakan.com. C-H-A-K-H-A-N.com. You're funny. Don't forget the www. Yeah, that's so dated, right? <laughs> no one says that. That's to see how much I see. I, I don't even do this kind of stuff. I don't. Know. I know, but it's funny because like I had to make a joke of it. No, no, I had to make a joke of it because he calls me old all the time. Whatever. I still have an AOL uh, email. Do you? I do. I mean, I have I have like four other Gmails and a couple <laughs> of other hilarious. accounts, but I still actually have an AOL account. Anyway, oh, wow. now we're rambling. We're going to go back to visiting. We are uh, again coming to you from Venice Beach, California. Love yourselves. Love on each other. We love you. That's a wrap for us. We'll see you soon. <laughs>